This is Guns and Butter. From the point of view of U.S. military planners, Syria and Iran are part of the same process. Uh, the U.S. military does not plan these war theaters in a separate way. They, they have a single decision-making process. They view the interaction between these war theaters. They have a long war perspective. This is stated in U.S. military documents. It's the long war. It's the war without borders. It's a hegemonic agenda. It's a global war. It's what we have called the globalization of war. Um, we have discussed and spoken about a World War Three scenario. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosarovsky. Today's show, Iran and the Globalization of War. Michel Chosarovsky is Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. He is co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Today we discuss recent developments in the Middle East, including the wider implications of the destabilization of the entire area, the current global war as a different kind of conquest than that of World War I and II, U.S. military deployment in the area, the role of Israel, Iranian defenses, U.S. war planning and war scenarios since 2003 concerning the nation of Iran, including Austere Challenge 12, Theater Iran Near Term, Global Strike 2003, Concept Plan 8022, and Vigilant Shield, the effect of sanctions, and the responsibility to protect. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. Uh, I'm delighted to be on the program. There's a lot going on in the Middle East, the so-called Arab Spring with the overthrow and attempted overthrow of Arab governments in Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, Syria, etc. A real upheaval is occurring, not to speak of the U.S. invasion and occupation of Afghanistan and Iraq and the destabilization of Pakistan, a nuclear power. Now we have renewed and very serious saber-rattling against Iran, including more severe sanctions, war games, threats against Iran's nuclear program. Through what lens do you view the wider implications and causes of the current turmoil in the region as a whole? Well, certainly the war-rattling in relation to Iran is at this stage the most important issue. I would say it's perhaps the most important issue in world history because there has been a massive deployment of military hardware, the sending of um, U.S. troops to Israel, to Kuwait, 15,000 troops to Kuwait, 9,000 troops to Israel, uh, the redeployment uh, of these troops 
was contingent upon the reduction of uh, U.S. military presence in Iraq. And so that a new war theater is unfolding uh, where uh, the United States and its allies are virtually surrounding Iran. If you look at the map, you see military bases in the Arabian Peninsula, in the Persian Gulf, uh, of course, in neighboring Pakistan and in Afghanistan. Um, at present, we may distinguish between four active war theaters in the broader Middle East, uh, Central Asian region, namely the so-called AFPAC war, the fact that the war in Afghanistan is spilling over into Pakistan, and in fact, um, there's an undeclared war between Pakistan and the United States. Of course, Iraq, and that war continues despite the withdrawal of, of troops, or at least the partial withdrawal of troops. Palestine, not exactly the same kind of war theater as, the, as Afghanistan and, and Iraq, but nonetheless territories which are militarized, occupied, and uh, which are very important in the context of um, U.S.-Israeli-Middle East geopolitics. And then we have, of course, Libya, which is a country recently invaded by NATO forces, uh, and uh, which has been devastated uh, with uh, more than 11,000 strike sorties, more than 50,000 missiles and bombs launched on a population of uh, 6 million people. So that is the equation. Uh, there are separate war theaters, but if Iran is attacked, all those war theaters ultimately will coalesce into a regional war um, because Iran has borders with um, Pakistan, it has borders with Afghanistan, with Iraq. Uh, Syria is an ally of Iran. Uh, the United States and its allies are attempting to destabilize Syria through covert operations. This is well documented that the vents inside Syria are the product of an armed insurgency uh, which is supported and financed uh, by foreign powers, including the United States, Israel, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia, and uh, that ultimately the purpose is to destabilize Syria, to uh, implement regime change, and that from the point of view of U.S. military planners, Syria and Iran are part of the same process. Uh, the U.S. military does not plan these war theaters in a separate way. They, they have a single decision-making process. They view the interaction between these war theaters. They have a long war perspective. This is stated in U.S. military documents. It's the long war. It's the war without borders. It's a hegemonic agenda. It's a global war. It's what we have called the globalization of war. Um, we have discussed and spoken about 
a World War Three scenario. And indeed, we are in a World War Three scenario. Uh, but we should also understand that this war is very different from the previous two so-called world wars. Um, it is using the most advanced weapon systems. Uh, it is applying what some analysts have called asymmetric warfare, where you go into a country, you destabilize its institutions, you send in covert operations uh, of um, special forces, you, uh, you implement drone attacks, uh, and so on. Um, namely, we're no longer within the realm of uh, conventional war uh, with opposing troops and armies and tanks. Those, of course, are still used and uh, are significant, but there's a whole gamut of, uh, of procedures uh, from cyber warfare, the disabling of, of enemies' uh, communication systems, uh, to climatic warfare, the use of environmental modification techniques, well-documented, uh, not discussed in, neither in military or or scientific circles, but relevant to, uh, to the conduct of modern warfare, um, and a whole gamut of, of other techniques, including, of course, biological uh, and, and chemical uh, weaponry. So that uh, what is at stake today is the most formidable deployment of military might in world history. It's uh, the vast array of uh, military bases, of U.S. military bases worldwide, the aircraft carriers, the strike groups, the Air Force, the missiles, um, all of which is coordinated centrally, I should emphasize centrally, by U.S. strategic command. Um, we are no longer in the framework whereby wars can be planned on the ground or regionally. Um, when confronting an enemy such as Iran, uh, decisions take place at U.S. strategic command. They're part of, um, of a global military agenda. Uh, this is entitled Global Strike, um, under what um, U.S. Strategic Command calls the concept plan. And these are coordinated plans um, using, of course, satellites, uh, advanced communication systems to wage war in different parts of the world and to coordinate the actions of the different uh, entities of the U.S. military as well as allied forces. Um, now, this pertains to the deployment of weapon systems and attack strategies, but it also pertains uh, to air defense systems, which are of crucial importance in modern warfare, because the weapon systems are so advanced that you want to make sure that your enemy is not going to retaliate in any meaningful ways, so that your air defense system has to be absolutely 100%. And uh, in the case of a war on Iran, 
Iran will retaliate. This is something which is well understood. Iran will retaliate. And the U.S. military and its allies, including Israel, have been building scenarios of that retaliation for years. Um, because the war on Iran has been in the pipeline at least since 2003 in the immediate wake of, uh, of the Iraq war. And what has withheld uh, actions against Iran is precisely the ability of Iran to retaliate with an advanced uh, missile system, guided missile system, which would inevitably be directed against U.S. military facilities in the Persian Gulf, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, but also uh, targets in Israel, which inevitably would result in civilian casualties. Um, we must understand that uh, Israel is playing a subordinate role in these war plans. Uh, there's been a lot of debate and discussion and confusion regarding the role of Israel. Uh, but Israel cannot, under any circumstances, wage aerial attacks against Iran without the green light from the Pentagon. And the reason for this is that in 2008, the U.S. military, in cooperation with Israel, uh, reformed the, the air defense system of Israel with a new radar system and integrated um, Israel's air defense system into that of the United States and NATO. Uh, so that from a logistical point of view, Israel cannot wage a war without coordinating with its allies, namely the United States and NATO. And also in 2005, um, Israel and NATO signed a, a protocol agreement which makes Israel essentially uh, a de facto member uh, of, of, the, of the Atlantic Alliance. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show, Iran and the Globalization of War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Can you describe the Iranian military capability? Well, I think we, we must, first of all, acknowledge that Iran is a significant military and economic power in the Middle East. Uh, it has uh, advanced uh, missile capabilities. It has an extensive air force. Uh, it has the capacity to mobilize virtually overnight uh, approximately one million troops. Uh, namely, as it stands, it has in excess of 500,000 uh, active military and reserve forces of the order of 650,000. Uh, in addition to that, uh, it has the, um, the Revolutionary Guards, which have their own uh, hierarchy and structure. Um, 
Iran is a country of 80 million people. It, it is classified among the, the, the top military powers in the world next to Germany and Israel. Um, and uh, uh, it has been preparing for these U.S. attacks, I would say, for the last 10 years. Uh, in other words, uh, a large share of its oil revenues have, in fact, been used to build up its air defense system. It has the S-300 Russian system. Uh, it has its own capabilities. It has a military industrial complex of its own. Um, from a military standpoint, most probably Iran would lose a war uh, with the United States uh, and NATO. But uh, what we can say is that that process of that war would not necessarily uh, lead to a straightforward victory of, of the United States, despite its military superiority. What we can say um, is that a war with Iran would result in a large amount of civilian casualties. And those casualties would not be limited to Iran. They would also occur in the Persian Gulf, in the Gulf states, uh, which are allies of, of the United States, which are slated to participate in this military operation. I'm not suggesting that that is going to occur, but there have been massive uh, shipments of weapons to, uh, to Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. That took place about two years ago. Um, the Pentagon... Uh, announced proudly that it had sold something of the order of $50 billion worth of military hardware to Saudi Arabia. And uh, um, there were also similar uh, sales to, to the Gulf states. Uh, and those, uh, those weapons are, in effect, really part of the U.S. arsenal. They're purchased by Saudi Arabia, but they're stationed in the Persian Gulf, and they are coordinated uh, by U.S. military advisors who are there. And ultimately, if, if they're to be used, they'll be used as part of a, of a U.S.-led coalition directed against Iran. So that the casualties will be extensive uh, in Iran, in neighboring countries, but also in Israel. And this is something which U.S. military analysts are fully aware that that any kind of military action against Iran would immediately lead to retaliation and Israel would be the target. That is assuming, of course, that Israel is part of this military alliance, which it is. And in that regard, I think we have to understand that one of the first victims of this war are the people of Israel. I'm not talking about the government, I'm talking about the people of Israel who have been betrayed by their government and a government which, in effect, would be instrumental in the destruction of Israel because um, immediately that whole region flares up. Um, the war would uh, inevitably extend into Lebanon and Syria um, and that is, in fact, part of the military agenda of this alliance, and uh, we would have a situation of confrontation between 
um, the Lebanese forces, which are essentially made up of Hezbollah, um, the Syrian forces. Um, I should mention that Russia has a naval base in, in southern Syria, in Tartus, and uh, the Russians have recently made a very important statement to the effect that if um, the security of Iran is threatened, that they will consider this as a threat to Russian security, which signifies that Russia is an ally of Iran, it is also an ally of Syria, and that if military action is, is directed against Iran or Syria, uh, Russia could intervene in the conflict, and then we are uh, essentially in a World War III scenario. Who was in charge of the Central Bank of Israel, and what is significant about this person? The ties between Israel and the United States are not limited to the military spheres, to the spheres of intelligence, uh, uh, military technology, armed forces. There are uh, overlapping economic ties. And one thing which I think is very significant is that a few years back, the deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund, who in effect is a U.S. citizen, was appointed governor of the Bank of Israel. A few years back, um, the deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund, Stanley Fisher, was appointed governor of the Central Bank of Israel. Uh, the Central Bank of Israel plays a key role in, uh, in financing the military agenda. It's, it's the instrument of, uh, of money creation. Uh, it overshadows uh, uh, the allocation of, um, of government uh, expenditures to different categories of, of spending. It, it performs essentially within Israel the same role as the Federal Reserve performs in the United States of America. Uh, the central bank ultimately calls the shots on where the economy is going. And the fact that this position, this, this key position uh, in Israel is held by an individual who is a U.S. citizen and who uh, has a, a financial career at the IMF and on Wall Street, I think is of utmost significance. Is there planning for American troops to be stationed in Israel long-term? In recent developments, uh, the United States has sent some 9,000 troops to Israel. This happened virtually overnight at the beginning of uh, January 2012. It has not been reported in the, in the Western media. And uh, these troops were intended to be 
attached to the conduct of major war games between the United States and Israel. But in effect, what's going to happen is that these troops are actually going to be stationed in Israel in the wake of the war games. So this is a very important and significant shift. There's going to be a permanent U.S. military presence in Israel with U.S. troops. There's already a large contingent of U.S. advisors. There's a very close relationship between the Pentagon and uh, the Israeli Ministry of Defense and the Israeli Armed Forces. And um, Israel is being used to launch um, military, U.S.-sponsored military operations in that region. And why is a war against Iran not in Israel's best interest? Well, that's a very important question. We might recall that a few years back, um, there was a controversy regarding a statement allegedly made by President Ahmadinejad uh, to the effect that Israel should be wiped off the map. And, uh, in fact, that statement was never made. It was a fabrication of the U.S. media. And what Ahmadinejad had actually said was that history will tell us that um, Israel will be removed from the page of history. Um, there have been translations and analysis of that statement, but never did he actually uh, point to any action by Iran to destroy the state of Israel, but simply saying that the regime in Israel will become obsolete. Uh, it will no longer exist historically, um, namely pointing to the, the Zionist entity. Uh, and uh, that statement, in effect, was used by U.S. foreign policymakers not only to create an aura of panic within Israel, but also to build uh, a, a casus belli um, directed against Iran, a, a, a thematic justification that because the Iranians wanted Israel to be wiped off the map, we should come to the, the rescue of Israel and we should wage a preemptive war against Iran so that that would prevent them from doing what they had said they wanted to do, which is to wipe Israel off the map. Um, all of which points to the falsehoods of the Western media, which portray Israel as the victim, and which portrays Iran as the threat to global security, not only to the security of Israel, but to the security of the Western world, um, when in fact, if we look at the facts, we can see that the major threat to global security is the United States and NATO, which are waging war simultaneously in different regions of the world. Uh, now, uh, is this war on Iran in the interest of Israel? Is this war there to prevent Iran from attacking 
Israel? The answer to that question is no. Uh, that war uh, will ultimately unleash a response by Iran. Iran has no interest in attacking Israel if, if Israel doesn't attack Iran. But in the case where the United States and Israel wage aerial bombardments directed against Iran, Iran will retaliate. And uh, that act of retaliation uh, is known and understood by U.S. military planners who are prepared to designate Israel as a collateral damage. The people of Israel are the collateral damage of, of U.S. foreign policy, of, of U.S. Uh, war plans. Uh, because if any kind of military action is, uh, is unleashed against Iran, there will be retaliation uh, against targets in the Middle East, including Israel. So that, in effect, who is wiping Israel off the map? It's, it's President Obama. It's not President Ahmadinejad, because President Obama has ordered an attack on a country which has the right to defend itself, and it will defend itself in the form of retaliation against those who have attacked it, namely Israel and the United States. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show, Iran and the Globalization of War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is Austere Challenge 12? The United States and uh, Israel are currently... Uh, involved in what is described as the most advanced and the largest um, war games in Israeli history. And these war games, entitled Oster 12, are there essentially to test Israeli air defense systems in the case of a war directed against Iran. Um, the framework of these, of these uh, war games and the timing is, is crucial because in the last few months, uh, Iran has been conducting war games. In fact, it completed uh, a set of, of war games uh, in late December. And the United States and Israel are now planning to wage their own war games. Uh, these war games also serve as a, as a show of force to Iran. Uh, they're there to intimidate uh, their uh, enemy, uh, and um, to indicate that the United States and its allies uh, are prepared to wage war on Iran 
if certain conditions are, are not met. What is Theater Iran near-term, war-planning termed T-I-R-A-N-N-T, or tyrant? Since um, 2003, the United States has been involved in, um, in war preparations directed against Iran, and in fact it has also conducted a number of, of war scenarios or war games. And uh, Theater Iran Near Term was one of the first um, war games conducted in the immediate wake uh, of the war on, on Iraq. Um, uh, it was conducted, in fact, in May of uh, 2003, uh, barely one month after uh, the completion of, of uh, theater operations by the, the um, U.S. military in Iraq. Now, theater Iran near term are war games and simulations uh, which uh, are based on this notion of global strike, uh, concept plan uh, A022, uh, which uh, consists in actual plans of the Navy, the Air Force, uh, which are then translated into strike packages against uh, a specified enemy. Theater Iran near term essentially replicated the Blitzkrieg the shock and awe uh, bombing campaign, uh, which uh, commenced uh, in March of 2003, directed against uh, Iraq. Um, and uh, it at least confirmed the fact that the U.S. military had already identified several thousand targets inside Iran as part of this, of this uh, military agenda. Uh, the, the notion that... Um, the United States would be conducting limited strikes or surgical strikes it has to be questioned because the war games that they've conducted invariably involve a much broader um, air campaign, which inevitably could also, you know, evolve towards a, towards a ground war. Now, a few years later, in 2006, uh, the... Pentagon launched another set of simulations under what was called Vigilant Shield. And these exercises um, are of particular interest because they, they essentially build a scenario of global warfare. Uh, the war simulations are not limited to a single Middle East war theater, uh, as in the case of Tyrant, they also include Russia, China, and, and, and North Korea. And uh, it's interesting to point out that uh, in these war games, you never identify the country by its actual name, so that uh, the names of the enemies of America under Vigilant Shield are Birmingham, Iran, Nemazi, North Korea, Rubek, Russia, and Shoria, China. And uh, essentially, Vigilant Shield is a scenario for World War III, because it shows how uh, uh, actions by Iran, um, missile testing and so on, um, are then followed by actions by Rubek and Shuria, Russia and China, and, uh, and that there's a whole sequence of events uh, 
um, uh, essentially in Vigilant Shield, the United States of America is the object of a military operation by this alliance of um, rogue states. And, uh, of course, also the, the war games are there to build a consensus uh, among top decision makers that the threat is real and that Shoria, Rubeck, Birmingham, and Nemesi are the enemies of America and are threatening America. And, and, uh, and this is the framework which, uh, which is presented on the Vigilant Shield. And what is the uh, road to conflict provision in Vigilant Shield 07? It's interesting to point out that in the in the details and sequencing of Vigilant Shield, where Birmingham, Nemesis, Rubeck, and Shoria are identified, there's a so-called road to conflict, and it starts when Birmingham starts nuclear enrichment, uh, and then uh, when Rubeck and Birmingham are involved in military cooperation. And then it evolves towards a situation where Rubeck closes its U.S. embassy in Washington, and then the Rubecki Russian uh, president makes a statement on, uh, on a possible U.S. attack, but in fact what happens is that Rubeck attacks the United States. And then there's a media campaign which discredits the Russian, uh, the Rubeck president, and so on. This... Um, this set of, of, of simulations has all different aspects of, of uh, you know, of diplomatic interaction, warfare, and so on. And uh, uh, we, we should understand that most of the simulations and war games are not um, made public. And these two uh, war games uh, stand out because uh, we have limited information on, on, their, on their features and characteristics, but there have been lots of other war games conducted by the U.S. military uh, which are more sophisticated, more advanced, and which have not been released to, to, to the public domain. But I'm certainly convinced by my understanding of military planning uh, that there is um, a global military agenda, uh, there's, uh, there's a sequencing of military operations, yet if you look at the project for the New American Century, they clearly specify that military operations are not necessarily to be conducted consecutively and that the United States is involved uh, or should be involved in major theater operations in different parts of the world simultaneously uh, so that there is sequencing but there's also this notion of waging simultaneous actions in different parts of the world, and that is the situation which ultimately prevails today. We see the U.S. military involved uh, in the Middle East and Central Asia, but they're also involved in the Horn of Africa, uh, in Somalia in particular, in, in uh, southern Sudan. Uh, they have various covert operations in different parts of the world. They're threatening China. They're threatening Russia so that we are within the framework of global warfare. Now, do the Vigilant Shield 07 war simulations also function as internal propaganda with a view to developing a preemptive war consensus within U.S. elites? You write about this. Well, the United States um, 
and its allies have conducted over the years what they call top-off exercises. Uh, Top-off exercises, in fact, uh, were conducted under the auspices of Homeland Security, and they were addressed to top officials, as the the code of the games indicates. But these top-off exercises were, uh, in effect, geared uh, towards preventing uh, acts of terrorism, in the United States. So it was within the realm of the war on terrorism. But more broadly, war games are also there to convince top decision makers in the, the military, in law enforcement, in civilian government, that the enemy is real, that there's a threat. I, I, I think that war games generally serve several purposes. Uh, They certainly feed the decision-making process of actual military planning. But there's another very important function. They're there to create a consensus at the top levels of the military, but also within the realm of civilian politics, of top decision-makers within within, uh, America that the war is justified, that the threat is real, that the enemies want to attack America, that we have to defend ourselves, because ultimately they build scenarios uh, where the United States is defending itself against uh, a known enemy. And in the case of, uh, in the case of Vigilant Shield 07, it's Russia and China and Iran and North Korea, which are the rogue states, which are attacking America, and uh, they constitute members of the axis of evil, and we have to defend ourselves, and so on and so forth, so that these simulations are ultimately, the simulations are there to, uh, to convince the participants that the threat is real, and that uh, America needs to defend itself, and therefore preemptive warfare is a valid objective of of U.S. military doctrine. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show, Iran and the Globalization of War. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. How likely do you think a war pretext or provocation incident is, or a false flag type scenario? Well, at the present juncture, there's a massive buildup of U.S. military might in the Middle East uh, with the transfer of 9,000 troops to Israel, 15,000 troops to Kuwait, the deployment of um, aircraft carriers in the Arabian Sea, um, the war games which are planned both by the United States and Iran, to the extent that an incident in the Persian Gulf, in the Strait of Hormuz, could uh, lead to confrontation at a military level between Iran and uh, U.S. allied forces. Uh, Whether this confrontation would be actually triggered 
by the United States and that Iran would fire the first shot, that remains to be established. But if we look at U.S. history, we know that from the Spanish-American War onwards, uh, this has been the strategy of, of the U.S. military. There's a continuum in U.S. military history. A casus belli, a cause for war, has always been sought with a view to uh, establishing public support for the war. And we might ask ourselves, is the Obama administration prepared to sacrifice one or more vessels of the Fifth Fleet, which is stationed in Bahrain, which would result in extensive casualties among soldiers and sailors. And this would be implemented with a view to mustering public support for a war in Iran on the grounds of self-defense. Uh, bearing in mind the history of, of uh, war justifications, uh, this is something which could be um, envisaged uh, by military planners. There's certainly acts of provocation which are occurring at this very moment with these war games. Well, now, uh, there have been a series of uh, economic sanctions uh, put on Iran, and there's a new set in the works. Now, how are these san sanctions against Iran affecting Iran generally? Uh, they, there are sanctions against uh, the Iranian central bank now, isn't there? Yes, let, let me first say that these sanctions um, directed against Iran are um, predicated on the fact that Iran has a nuclear weapons program. And the irony is that coinciding with the, the implementation of those sanctions, which was on the 31st of December, when uh, President Obama actually approved the sanctions regime, uh, Leon Panetta, the U.S. De Defense Secretary, went live on network television and stated unequivocally, I quote, are they trying to develop a nuclear weapon? No, unquote. In other words, the U.S. Secretary of Defense uh, has, uh, has, in effect, uh, has, in effect, told us that the pretext for imposing the sanctions is invalid, and this has also had an impact on the way U.S. allies have responded to the, to the sanctions regime. Yes, the U.S. sanction regime on the, on the Iranian Central Bank have been, have been devastating. They've led to a, a massive collapse in the Iranian real, uh, the Iranian currency. Um, yet, with regard to Iran's oil exports, uh, both Russia and China have, have, uh, have refused to, to abide by these sanctions. But these are sanctions imposed by the U.S. administration and the, and the U.S. Congress. They're not sanctions which are uh, imposed by the United Nations Security Council. So China has said no, and very categorically, um, and, uh, and the Russians have said the same. And in fact, the Russians have even, have even stated that they will stand by Iran militarily if Iran is attacked. Um, with regard to the oil exports, uh, China, 
China relies heavily on Iran. In fact, 22% of China's oil requirements are from are in the form of imports from Iran. So that that um, you know that is a very significant amount of oil, and consequently, I don't see that Iran will necessarily. Um, that its oil industry will be paralyzed as a result of these sanctions because both Russia and China um, have, uh, have, uh, have emphasized that they will not um, enforce the sanctions regime. And I would suspect that while the Europeans have paid lip service to, to the sanctions regime, uh, in effect, uh, there will be a number of loopholes. And at least from that standpoint, the Iranian oil industry uh, stands firm in relation to uh, to Western uh, threats. And what do you think of the Iranian threat to close the Strait of Hormuz and the um, back and forth with regard to these threats? Well, that is, uh, of course, a very complex question. Um, I, I think it's important to understand that the Strait of Hormuz is a very narrow canal, passageway between the, the Gulf of Oman and, and the Persian Gulf. And it is very difficult for U.S. warships or for general cargo vessels to uh, transit through the Strait of Hormuz without going through Iranian territorial waters. Now, to this effect, in recent developments, the Iranian parliament has been re-evaluating the use of Iranian waters at the Strait of Hormuz by foreign vessels. And, in fact, they've passed legislation, or they're passing legislation, which would block foreign warships from going through Iranian territorial waters without seeking the permission of the Iranian authorities. That is what is at stake. Because at, the, at this juncture, it is very difficult to transit through that narrow passageway without either entering into Iranian territorial waters or uh, on the way out through the territorial waters of, uh, of Oman. It's a passageway of... Uh, of um, in terms of width and number of islands there, which is less than 100 kilometers wide. And finally, Michelle, what is the responsibility to protect? The responsibility to protect is part of this humanitarian mandate. It's a fabricated concept. It states that NATO has the responsibility to protect the populations of countries which have authoritarian governments or where democracy does not prevail as it prevails in Western countries. And so that uh, responsibility to protect means that you can go into a country, bomb the hell out of the country, uh, with a view to instating democracy. And this, this was the logic of NATO's intervention in Yugoslavia in uh, 1999. It was also the logic underlying the intervention in Libya last year, 
2011, um, to the fact that you uh, intervene uh, with the support of the United Nations Security Council uh, with a view to protecting people in that country, protecting Libyans against their own government. But in effect, <laughs> that whole notion was was based on on lies and fabrications, um, particularly with regard to Libya, uh, where the country was literally destroyed. Its infrastructure was destroyed, its water system, its food uh, distribution system, its institutions, its, its schools and universities were bombed, healthcare centers were bombed. Uh, none of this was really reported in the, in the media, um, except with regard to a minimal coverage uh, on so-called collateral damage. Uh, we didn't mention the fact that the so-called rebels uh, were integrated by al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations, the Libya Islamic Fighting Group. They were the foot soldiers of NATO. Uh, they were supported by um, U.S. intelligence operatives on the ground, and in fact that this was a NATO invasion of a sovereign country. Whether we like the leader of that country or not is not the issue. And for many years, the war in Iran has been on the Pentagon's drawing board. Uh, oil is the trophy of this war on Iran. In other words, what the United States and its allies wants to do is to break up the, the Iranian oil industry, reprivatize it, uh, and handed over to the United States and British oil companies. We must understand that uh, the Anglo-Persian oil empire was a British project of uh, what is now called British Petroleum, previously called the Anglo-Persian Oil Company, and that the oil wealth in Iran was, in fact, uh, the very basis for the development of British Petroleum as one of, one of the largest world's corporations in, in the oil business, so that what the United States and its allies want, it's an Anglo-American project, is to reconquer those oil reserves and confiscate the assets of the Iranian oil industry. That is the unspoken objective of this war, and the U.S. media is misleading us into believing that somehow we are waging this war to protect Israel um, from Iran and to make the world safer by going after Iran and, and its allies. And I should also mention that both Russia and China are fully aware of the fact that the war on Iran is ultimately the stepping stone to a broader war directed against uh, the two remaining uh, competing powers in the world, namely Russia and China, uh, and it's not um, by accident that uh, in the latest uh, uh, allocations of, of the U.S. Uh, defense budget that uh, much emphasis has been placed on, on the militarization of the Pacific and the South China Sea. Why? Because essentially that is, uh, that is where the U.S. military wants to place its... Uh, forces for the future, challenging, of course, the growing role of China in the Asia-Pacific region. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. 
Thank you. I'm delighted to be on the program. I've been speaking with Michelle Chosarovsky. Today's show has been Iran and the Globalization of War. Michel Chosarovsky is director of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues. Michel Chosarovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order. War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. He is a co-editor and contributor to a new anthology, The Global Economic Crisis, The Great Depression of the 21st Century. Many economists and investigative journalists have contributed to this new volume. Visit the Center for Research on Globalization website at www.globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call to all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what this side yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me? 